Well, I appreciate that. You may be seated. It started to get awkward there for a minute. <laughs> I love this place. It is so good to see you guys impact life. I mean, you guys have such a special place in our heart. And uh, I may have told you this before, but anytime I meet people when I'm not here in Canada or meet somebody like back home that's originally from Canada or something, I was like, yeah, we've got friends in Red Deer. They're like, you know Red Deer? You've been to Red Deer? You've heard of Red Deer? Yeah. And uh, I got to tell you how much we love coming to this place. We love the life that's in this place. Uh, but I just want to echo what Joel and Jamie said. These, this is a special friendship and a special relationship for us. We so love being a part of your lives and your family. And uh, we've already just made some great memories, I think, together in the last few years. One of my favorites was, I think the last time we were here, um, Jamie was doing announcements. You hoped I wouldn't bring that up, right? And, and she, true to mom form, did the whole series of announcements, the giveaways, the everything, with a sucker stuck to her shirt and her dress. So I thought, that is a mom. That... Those are the medals of honor that you wear, suckers stuck to the dress. Impact life. You know, this, this name and this identity change that um, you all have been walking through and living out over the last year or two, uh, I guess that's about what it's been now, a couple of years. Um, what is in a name? Because it's not just something that's intended to be eye-grabbing or catchy. It's supposed to embody the assignment that's on a place. It's supposed to put into a word or two the heart and the mission and the, uh, the lifeblood of who you are. And when you just stop and think about it, you know what does an impact do? There are things, things can touch and that's fine, but when two things hit, or at least one thing hits another with a certain velocity at a certain speed, with enough momentum, an impact takes place, and to put it simply, it leaves a mark. Yeah. That's what an impact does, yeah. is it leaves a mark. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that come in and out of our lives, but a mark is never left. Yeah. But the call and the assignment on this place, on your leadership, as it flows down, the anointing on them, as it flows down to the body of this church, your assignment is to leave a mark. <laughs> you, ever, <laughs> you ever walked into a very clean sliding glass door <laughs> that you had no idea was there? <laughs> That'll leave a mark. You know what I mean, right? I mean, hitting something with such velocity and in such a way that an impact was made and a mark was left. Well, I believe that's the calling on this church, but uh, it's not just a local church with an assignment just to this community. It's an assignment across the nation of Canada to leave a mark. And people ought to know when they've been in the presence of Jesus. A mark should be left. And not a physical one, but one on the heart, right? One on the heart, a mark on the inside that shows up on the outside. And that's what religious people said in the book of Acts about the disciples. They said, we can tell you've been with Jesus. I think they thought it as a, a uh, put down, but we hear it as the greatest compliment in the world. You can tell you've been with Jesus. 
there was one group of people complaining about the Christians in the early days and they dragged, I think it was a man named Jason, they dragged him out and held him before the religious leaders and they said, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And they were complaining. But I read it like, yeah, that's absolutely right. I say, let that be said of us, amen? Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful, so grateful to have some time with you. And it never fails. I think this is our, do we start our fourth time? It feels like so many more, but uh, our fourth time to come see you guys. And every time I've taken this pulpit, there's been something fresh. I've been living with a word, a message for weeks or months and think that I'm bringing it into this place. And either moments before we get here or while I stand here, there's something else going on. And uh, a few years ago, I don't know how else to say it. That just freaked me out. <laughs> I was like, Lord, a little heads up would have been nice. That would have been great. But anymore, I, I love it. Because it says something about the atmosphere of the place. It says something that communicates to me that it's living here. Yeah. It's living. It's alive. It's, it, it's, um, we're not just going through the paces. There, there's a charge here. Right. And uh, so I'm very excited to, to hear what the Lord would have to say. Yeah. Really, I'm excited to hear it because <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Father, we worship you tonight. You are such a faithful Father God. You are faithful to your word. You watch over it and you perform it in our lives. You are faithful to your promise. You're faithful to your children. You have never failed us. You've never let us down. You've never let us go. And we are grateful. We worship you tonight and we give you all the praise, Lord. We invite your presence to fill this place, to fill every heart and every mind, every life, every family that's represented in here, Lord. I ask you and invite you, invite your kingdom to come in here and your will to be done in and through these services the same way it is in heaven. We come before your word tonight. Your holy, powerful, living word. We come with eyes wide open. We come with ears wide open and a heart that is wide open to receive. We want eyes that see Jesus, see Him clearly, more clearly than we see each other, more clearly than we see anyone or anything else. Show us Jesus tonight. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us. Give us ears that hear the voice of our Good Shepherd who calls us by name and leads us out. Out of whatever it is we're in that we need out of, Jesus, you are faithful to lead us out. But not just to lead us out, Father. We're, I'm asking you would lead us in, into the next step, into the next part, into the next phase and assignment of your calling on our lives. Give us hearts tonight that are quick to receive and understand more about who we are in you, Lord Jesus, and who you are in us. We thank you for the good work you've begun in us and we know that you are faithful to finish it because you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. We worship you tonight and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Move life forward. Move life forward. You know, it's, a, it's an appropriately named conference because that is the direction life is moving in. I don't know if you realize that or not yet, but it is moving decidedly in one direction. And it's that way, forward, in front of you. 
That's the way time is marching. That's the way life is moving. But listen to this. That's the way faith moves. It's the walk of faith, isn't it? Aren't we instructed in Scripture to walk by faith? The just shall live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Folks, it's the walk. The implication there very clearly is the forward walk. of This is not the moonwalk of faith. This is the forward move of faith. That's the direction faith moves. So that's the direction that pleased God, pleases God because, you know, without faith, it is very, very difficult to please Him. Is that right? No. It's impossible. It can't be done. Without faith, you cannot please God. In the book of Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there. I know you know this verse, but in chapter 29, verse 11, Jeremiah 29, 11, we've, we've heard it, we've said it, we know it. And it was the Lord speaking. And we've taken this one verse... For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord. But if you go back and read it, it's almost funny when you hear the Lord say this through the prophet Jeremiah. Because what was happening was there were a lot of people standing up and saying, Thus says the Lord, God says this, God wants that, the Lord God says this. And they were wrong. And finally, God himself had to speak up and say, I know the thoughts I think towards you. In other words, if you want to know what I think, ask me. You're going to have to find out from me. I mean, he is so eternally patient. Do you know how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years he's had to listen to people say this is what God thinks? People that don't know him? People that aren't taking time in an effort to know him? Or people that have so drastically misunderstood him and yet stand in front of others and represent him? Have you seen that emoji with the guy that just has his hand <laughs> on his head like this? I use that one all the time. I think I said to you tonight. It just says so much. I think, I think it, <laughs> we could do a whole translation of scripture with emojis and there would just be one of God doing this. Listening to what people say he's like or what people... Think he has said, and he had to speak up to the prophet Jeremiah and say, Hey, I know the thoughts I think towards you. And you've been in these frustrating arguments before when somebody says to you, Well, you just think that, or you just think that that, and you're going, I don't think that. I never said that. See, husbands and wives, we got to be watchful that we don't let this stupid little strife get in between us. Well, you think this about my mom, and you think this about my family, and you think this about me. And you're like, I'm not, I don't, I know the thoughts that I think towards you and your mother. I don't think these things. How frustrating is it to be told you think something that you don't think? And he finally speaks up and says, I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, good, hope, not evil. One translation says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Another translation says, I know the plans that I have for you. The Amplified Bible says, I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you. It's always interesting to me when you go through these different translations, particularly our English translations of Scripture, 
and these, this one word in either the Hebrew or the Greek that got translated all these different ways, it, it number one shows you how limited our language is, that it takes 15 words to say what this one word in the Hebrew said. So it, it helps sometimes to study him in these different translations because you really get a clearer picture of what he was trying to say. And that one word in the Hebrew got translated both to thoughts and to plans. Now let me ask you something about plans. Which time tense do plans belong to? Past or future? They belong to the future. You can't plan the past, can you? You cannot tomorrow morning make your to-do list of things to do yesterday. You can't cook dinner tonight for last night's meal. You can't make preparations. You can't plan the past. And when the Lord said this, I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you. This one word has got both what he thinks and it's a reference to the plan. So what's on his mind, what he's thinking is the plan. You want to know what's on God's mind? the plan. Where are we going? Where are we moving? What's in front of us? You want to know what he's not thinking? What's behind us? The past. This is not on his mind. That's good news for a whole bunch of us. Your past and mine is not what's on his mind. So why is it on yours? Why do we live with it on our minds as though there was something more to be done about it? As though it was worthy of as much or more time than our thoughts concerning the future. We're going to have to get on our minds what's on His. What's on His mind? The plan. Where are we headed? What's in front of us? And as I was leaving the hotel room this evening, this question came up to me. So what's next? What's next? And I almost heard it as though the Lord just is standing in front of you tonight saying, what's next? So what's next? But I hear you and I saying it back to him. What's next? What's coming? Where are we going? Go with me in scripture to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Did you guys get my cookie video? <laughs> okay, good. See, that's how you know we're friends. I don't do videos like that for everybody. All my other videos are like, hello, dear brother and sister. I'm so blessed to be coming to see thou. And, but with you guys, I can do the whole video with a mouthful of cookies. It's great. I really appreciate the friendship. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I want to read something to you, beginning in verse 20. It says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Now, don't let this fool you, these words, some for honor, some for dishonor. When you read that, at first glance, you might think some are good, some are bad. But he's not referencing their nature in a good sense versus an evil or a bad sense. What he's talking about is how they get used. 
Some vessels get used in one way. Other vessels get used in another way. Read it again with that in mind. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. How many of you know you don't use your gold stuff for the same thing you use the wood stuff for, right? You don't use the gold and silver for the same purpose as the wood and the clay. But check this out. You still use all of it. They get used. There's a use for all of it. And he's comparing us to these vessels. But here's what's different about us in comparison to a a, something made out of gold or silver or wood or clay. He said, therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. So a wood bowl or a wooden box, once it's that, it is that forever. You don't change the DNA of that. You don't change the nature of that. But here's what's miraculous about these vessels, you and me. And that's what we are as vessels. And this is not the first and only time Paul used this word vessels to talk about us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it is, 3 or 4, he talks about uh, having treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen, same thing here, clay, something just made out of clay, made out of dirt. I, I hate to bring be the one that tells you this, but you and I are really just cheap clay pots. That's kind of what we are, except that we've got a treasure in us. And that's what he said. We have this treasure in the earthen vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Or in other words, there's nothing special about the cheap clay pot. What's special is the treasure in it. Can you hear me? You understand what I'm saying? What's special is not the outward man. What's unique and what's special is the treasure that's been put in the vessel. And here's where you and I, again, differ, differ from these other vessels. We can become something else. He said, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel for honor. Notice this now. Sanctified. Everybody say the word sanctified. sanctified. You know what that means? It just simply means, I heard it, set apart. I could sanctify you, Joel. I could sanctify you just simply by grabbing you by the hand, pulling you off the front row, and pulling you out here. So you've got the crowd here, but you've been sanctified, set apart, pulled out. You remember when the scripture said, come out from among them and be separate, be holy? That's what that means. Just come out from the crowd. I used to youth pastor teenagers just like you guys did. And I would tell them all the time, guys, listen to me. Holiness does not blend in. And that's one of the greatest temptations for our young people is just to disappear into the crowd just to blend in. And it's so funny in their, in their dire attempt to be unique, <laughs> they just end up looking like everybody else. It's such a trick of the enemy. You want to stand out. Holiness, character, morality. These things stand out. These things make you unique. So this is what this word sanctified means, just, just set apart. He says, if you cleanse yourself from the latter, you'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Notice again what he said, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. I was 
36, almost 37 years old, sitting on a balcony of a hotel room on vacation with Sarah. It was our first morning on vacation. And I was reading these scriptures right here that I'm reading to you tonight. And I ended up in the modern English version of this scripture, which talks uh, along these same lines. And it says that you would be a vessel sanctified and fit for the master's use. Fit. That's the word translated useful here. Fit for his use. And I'm reading this, and I know there's something in it for me, and I'm just listening to the Lord. And he spoke up on the inside of me, and he said, Jeremy, I want you fit by 40. Fit by 40. And, uh, you know, honestly, your, your first thought when you hear something like that is, I got to start working out. <laughs> now you're looking at me, and you think, well, you obviously work out. <laughs> Obviously, need two more, obviously. But uh, here's what you got to understand when the Lord talks to you about something like this is He's never talking to you about change from the outside in. It's always, with Him, it's always change from the inside out. And the outward things are great, but no matter how much you work this thing out, no matter what you do to the outward man, no matter what you do to this earthen vessel, it's perishing. The outward man is perishing. Now that is enough right there to depress a lot of people. Which is why it is a multi-billion dollar industry trying to keep this thing from perishing. People are nipping this and tucking that and doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm not knocking any of it. You know, do whatever you want to do. As long as you realize this thing is perishing. But the inward man, he said, is being renewed day by day. So when the Lord start, starts talking to you or what he said to me, I want you fit by 40, just a few minutes of thought, you realize, okay, he's not talking to me about just what's going on out here. And I believe that's certainly a part of it. But he's talking to me about change. And uh, just under a week ago, I turned 39. So this window called 30s is quickly closing but I sense it more in these last few days than I have in these last few years since he told me that something's coming something's coming that's really the revelation and the insight behind a word like that Jeremy something's coming I want you fit we might say it in shape that's what that means in shape I want you fit by the time you turn 40 and that's exciting to me because that, to me, reveals that something is on its way. There is something coming, which, honestly, folks, duh. We ought to know that because in God, something's always coming. No matter where you are in your life, something is always coming. He is not a God who stands still, he's not stagnant, and he doesn't want you to stagnate either. Something in God is always coming. And I talk to people pretty often about what I call the, the two phases of change. There's one phase of change that I call change is coming. There's another phase of change that I call change is here. And what you don't want to do is get those confused. 
Because a lot of people get a sense of something coming, a sense of something changing, and they mistake this phase called change is coming for change is here. And they think, well, it's time to, I got to do something and I got to do this now and we got to make this shift and make this change. And I think sometimes it is a calculated risk that God takes to give you and I a tiny glimpse of what he's called us to. Because how many times have we gotten this, just this sliver of prophetic vision for our lives and said, Woo, all right, thanks God, I'm out of here. And he's going, I, I did just want to... It's like, let him finish the thought. And it's a real calculated risk on his part to show you and me anything. Because most people, I believe, when he shows them what's ahead, what's in front, they have one or two responses. One, they don't let him finish the sentence and they get out there and try to do it on their own. But most turn around and run the other way. You remember when the scripture said, without vision, people perish? You think, why would anybody live without vision? We may get into this some, but this is the short answer right here, fear. That what God's called them to or created them to do or asked them to do is too big, too expensive, too expansive, beyond their ability, and they run the other direction in fear. We may touch on this some before the weekend's over, but when he says something like this to me or to you, to any of us, it's revelation. Something's coming. And that phase of change when change is coming, that's a very long phase, or it can be. Now, the phase called change is here is pretty quick because even when change is here and you step into that next place, guess what phase you're in now? Change is coming. <laughs> Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So we're, I believe we're always living in one of those two phases of change. Either change is coming or change is here. I'm living with a very sober awareness right now in my life. Something's coming. It's on its way. And on one hand, it's very exciting. It really is. We're thrilled to think that there's a, new, a next step for us. Family, ministry, calling, but on the other hand, it's a word of warning because I hear the Lord saying, Jeremy, I couldn't do this thing for you right now if I wanted to because you're not fit for it. You're not in shape. I can't use you in the shape you're in. I'll show this to you in Scripture. But He wants us sanctified and fit for the Master's use. Now notice this, prepared for every good work. You know what prepared means? Made ready beforehand. That means you're ready to walk through the door the moment it opens. Now, I have experienced this on the other side of it a number of years ago. Um, the Lord had talked to Sarah and I about our ministry and what was next for us. And this has been several years. And we really believed that he had assigned us to start a television ministry. And uh, we, we were pressing towards that, and we have a small team at home, and, um, you know, we were traveling still full-time, doing all that, just like we are now. And, and if you were to ask us, you know, what, what are you guys called to? What are you going to do? We would have told you, you know, television. We're pressing towards television. We're pressing towards television. One day I get a call from my grandfather, 
Brother Kenneth Copeland, many of you know him. And this was just before they launched the Believer's Voice of Victory television network, which is a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week faith <laughs> preaching network. And just before they launched and made opportunity for other ministers, he called me and said, we want you and Sarah on the network. When your broadcast is ready, let's launch it. And I said, well, when are you guys doing this? And he said, September. And it was like July. And we didn't have a TV show. So I kind of broke out in a cold sweat, you know. And I get home from where I was, and I called the head of the television department. And he said, well, listen, you know, it's just a standing invitation. When you're ready and you have a program, let us know. We're ready to put it on. Like, oh, okay. Well, that makes more sense. So, so we weren't under quite as big a rush. So that was July. August came. We had no broadcast. September came. We had no broadcast. And now this network's on the air, and we're not on it. But that's okay. When we're ready, we can do it. October, no TV show. November, no broadcast. December, guess what? No broadcast. Finally, in January, you know what we had? No broadcast. <laughs> and it was months. Until finally one day, I, the Lord just, I think he just, just spoke up on the inside of me. I, I, I can't tell you the heard an audible voice or anything like that. It was just a, a, a cold, hard realization of like, what are you doing? I created opportunity for you to do the thing I called you to do months ago. When are you going to do it? And it was so sobering in me that we got together as a staff and I said to our little team, I said, are you guys familiar with the expression light a fire? That was one I heard a lot growing up, being from Texas, the South. It was, come on, Jeremy, light a fire, boy. What's that, what does that mean? Does anybody know? Moms, help me out. What's it mean? You're moving slow or not at all. It's time. Let's go. We got to go. We got to go. So that's what we did as a staff. And in a matter of weeks, we had our first program. We had it recorded. We had it to the network, and it was on the air. And man, when it hit the air, we were like, oh, wow, praise God. Isn't this wonderful? And it was. It was great. And I'm just thanking God over it. And at the same time, I just get a sense on, on the inside. The Lord's saying, you know, you had months. You could have been ready. Not now, but when the door opened. But because you weren't ready, you stood at the threshold of an open door. But couldn't go through it. And I totaled, totaled it all up and it was seven months. It was seven months of not preaching Jesus. It was seven months of not giving opportunity for people to be born again. It was seven months of missed opportunity to cast our vision in front of people and let, let the Lord partner them with us and us with them. Seven months because of one thing, was not ready. And I made the commitment to the Lord then, and I'm sticking to it now, I will be ready. And never again will I stand at the threshold of a door you opened and are calling me to walk through frozen because I'm not ready to take a step. He's talking to us about being prepared for every good work. Well, what's, this, what's the good work he's referring to? Well, there, there is no better work than the work he's called you to, whatever that is. There is no, there's nothing greater than the thing that he's created you to do. You'll never be more satisfied. You'll never be more fulfilled. You'll never be more blessed. 
You'll never be more full of joy doing anything other than the thing that he's called you to do. Amen. But it's a matter of being, number one, fit for his use, and number two, prepared for the work. Fit for his use, prepared for the work. I want to show this to you played out in a number of different ways. Go back to the Gospels with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. This is all so good. You, you could begin in verse 51. It says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him, for Jesus, to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want you to notice how many times that expression comes up just in these few verses. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. It's an interesting expression to me. Not one that I could totally tell you that I know exactly what it means other than to say, I think you could see it in his face. Where he was going. What his assignment was. His face was set. Do you wonder what people see when they look into your face? When they look into mine? Do they see purpose? Do they see somebody sold out to the assignment? Somebody that's gone all in for the call? Because they could see it in his face. So much so that the people in this village didn't receive him for one reason. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? <laughs> he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went to another village. Verse 57, It happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Famous last words right there. Jesus, I'm with you. I will follow you wherever you go. Joel, Jamie, it's like somebody coming and saying, man, we are never leaving this church. I remember being in junior high when my parents became pastors of our church. And there was so much momentum and growth in those early days. I mean, it literally went from, I think, less than 100 people to to 100, then 200, then 300, and one service, then two, then three services, all packed out. And there was so much momentum, such a sense and a stir of excitement. And there were people coming to mom and dad, and it seemed like on a regular basis, and they were saying, we love you. We love this place. We're here forever. And the first dozen times you hear it, you think, wow, that's amazing. Praise God for you. <laughs> Until you look up. And it just seemed like days or weeks later, you're like, where's that guy? Where's that family that was never leaving here, that was here forever? And then it finally got to the point years later where it was like as the pastor's family, somebody would come and say, we're here forever. And you're like, please just don't say that. Just, just anything but that. 
Why? Because there's a difference between those who say and those who do. And these are words a lot like those, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus, you know, he sees right through it. His response was not, oh, wow, what a blessing. It was, foxes have holes. <laughs> Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't you know that the head of the discipleship recruitment department of the Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association hated it when Jesus starts giving the foxes and birds speech? They're like, no, Jesus, we're trying to get people. We, try to, we want them on the team, and you keep running them off with your foxes and your birds. But is this the truth or not? I mean, he sees through what this guy is saying. You're with me forever? But it says in verse 59, he, he turned to another, and I want you to hear this. Jesus turned to another and said two words. Read them out loud with me. What were they? Follow, Follow me. me. Without a doubt, the greatest two words to ever fall on human ears from the mouth of Jesus. Follow me. And we've all heard it. Everybody in this place, you've heard that, those two words, follow me. And before any person will ever leave this earth, they will hear these words, follow me. That's what you do with them and how you respond to those words that determine a lot about your eternity. But everybody's heard them. Everybody will. The greatest words I'm convinced to ever fall on human ears from the mouth of Jesus, follow me. But listen to this man's response. He said, Lord, let me first. Did you notice that? Let me first. Me first. Let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go, and the implication is now, and preach the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting because this guy didn't say no. Jesus said, follow me. And the, the man he was talking to didn't respond and say no. But in the eyes and ears of Jesus, it might as well have been. And it seems like he's got a good reason. Let me first go and bury my father. Now, the, the way this reads to us, it sounds like my father is dying or has just passed away. Let me go take care of this and I'll be right with you. There's something in this language, and again, I don't speak it, but I, I've studied some of this out, and really what he was communicating was, let me go and wait until my father's gone. Now that really is pretty relevant for a lot of people now, who have come eye to eye with the call of God in their lives, but out of fear over what dad or somebody else would think or say about it. Refuse to step out and obey and answer the call to follow Jesus. And what this guy is saying is like, let me end that phase of my life, then I'll give the next phase to you. But Jesus wasn't having it. It says in verse 61, another also said, so Jesus said the same two words to another. Another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first. The exact same thing the other guy said, me first. First, 
Let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's that word again, fit. Now let me ask you something about these guys he's talking to. We don't have names here. We don't know a whole lot about them other than this conversation. But I could ask you a few questions and I bet you'd know the answers. Number one, is it safe to say Jesus loves these men? You know he does. They've got human blood coursing through their veins. Jesus loves these men. Number two, is it safe to say they have a call on their lives? Yeah, they just heard it. Like out of the mouth of Jesus himself, follow me. Here's the call of God on your life. It's literally the call of God. God is calling them, come follow me. So they're loved by God and they're called by God. But because of their response to the call and because they responded with me first, Jesus essentially said to him, I love you. I've called you, but I can't use you. You're not fit. You're not in a shape or in a condition that I can use. Let me first. If you know anything about Jesus, it's not me first. It's seek ye first what? The kingdom. It's kingdom first at all times in all things. This is what makes us fit for the master's use is that our priorities are right. It's not me first. It's not, Lord, let me first get some money in the bank. It's not, Lord, let me first get the kids through school. It's not, Lord, let me first get my business a little more established. It's not, let me first, let me first, let me first. It is at all times, in all things, Jesus, you first and your kingdom first. But in contrast to this, go to the book of Mark, chapter 1. In verse 16, it says, And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. I like this detail. For they were fishermen. <laughs> you know, there's no wasted word here. These guys are fishermen. Or in other words, they're not out there throwing a net into the sea for the fun of it. This is their livelihood, yeah. right? And where, whereas you might go fishing for a little peace and quiet, this is money in the bank for them. This is food on the table, clothes on their back. That's why they're casting this net into the sea because they're fishermen. And Jesus said to them, what did he say? What did he say? Come on, what did he say? Follow me. Same two words. Now, the only other thing they got that the others didn't was this piece of cryptic information. I'll make you fishers of men. Now, you and I have the luxury of 2,000 years of knowing what in the world he's talking about with that. But imagine hearing that for the first time in your life. This guy walks up to you and says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What does that mean? I don't know. But they immediately left their nets and followed him. Something so magnetic about Jesus. Such a supernatural draw that comes out of him. Follow me, he said. And what did they do? They left their net. 
When he'd gone a little further in verse 19, a little farther from there, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So contrast this, these guys who heard these words follow me to the ones we just read about in Luke 9 who heard these words follow me. Here's somebody who we read about first that said, yeah, okay, later, but let me first, let me first, let me first. And Jesus said, if you've put your hand to the plow and you're looking back, I love you, I've called you, but I can't use you. He said, nobody putting his hand to the plow and looking back. Hand to the plow, looking back. Let that paint a picture for you. Hand to the plow, looking back. Number one, why a plow? This is an essential part of the sowing and reaping process. Yet it's one we don't talk about. You cannot sow in an unplowed field. But you want to know one of the reasons it doesn't get talked about very much? It's hard. <laughs> Plowing's hard. And it's dirty. <laughs> and you've got this ground that is just hard and packed. And there's rocks and there's tree stumps and there's every imaginable thing in your way. And you look at this field and you're like, I'm going to sow in this bad boy and I'm going to reap and I'm going to be rich and I'm going to sow and I'm going to reap and I'm going to sow and I'm going to reap. So what comes first? Okay, we got to plow it and all of a sudden you start plowing and uh, 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 something's in your way and you've worked all day and got three feet. What's the temptation? Start looking back at the house. This was a lot easier when daddy was plowing the field. Did you notice both of these guys, there was a draw on that came from home? Let me go to my father. Let me bid farewell to them who are at my house. You notice this, that home, where you're from, tries to put such a draw on you. Stay here. It's okay. It's safe here. It's easier here. Don't step out. But this is the first thing God told a man named Abram to do. Get you out of your father's house. Now, folks, the man was 70 years old. It was time. <laughs> Spread your wings, brother. It's time. <laughs> Don't you know his dad was like, <laughs> get out. I can't believe he's gone. Finally. But this is what God told this man to do. Get out of your father's house. I mean, you could back up even before that. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. Why? And it's because this, where you're from, if you're going to go forward with God, this cannot be your security. This cannot be your source or your supply. And that's what God was having to do with Abram. And here are these guys going, Lord, let me follow you, but let me go home. And he's saying, look, if you put your hand to the plow and you start looking back at the house, I can't use you. But on the other hand, he calls these guys, and immediately what they do, they left their net. 
and followed him. I think that's an interesting detail. They left the net. Have you ever been to a circus? Yes? No? Seen one? Familiar? The concept, anyway? You know the part of the circus where they walk, those, those guys in the tight pants walk across the, <laughs> the, the tight rope? And, it, you know, it's, it's the, the uh, spotlights are going and it's all dramatic and they're climbing the ladders and it's four stories high and they get up there and walking across and everybody's bated breath, will they make it? But you realize, if you look down a little bit, there's this net, right? Am I right? That's sprawled out underneath them. So let's say they happen to fall. What's the worst that's going to happen? He loses his balance. Oh, ooh, gingerly lands into the net, springs back up to his twinkle toes, and everybody applauds. No harm, no foul. But what happens the moment you take away that net? It gets real in a hurry, doesn't it? What about these guys who stretch out that cable between two skyscrapers downtown Chicago? What about the guy that ran a cable across the Grand Canyon and went walking without a net? That's another thing entirely, isn't it? I mean, the risk factor goes way up when you take away the net, when you take away something to fall back on. Now, what are you and I looking at as our net? Hmm? If you're looking at the bank account and it's, it determines your emotions, either good or bad, and if there's a big stack of cash there, it's whew, we got something to fall back on. See, money's not supposed to have that much power over us. What are you using as a net? Because these guys left their net and followed him. Now, that would have been a funny picture, wouldn't it, if they had followed him but didn't leave the net? Follow me. Okay. And they're dragging this net behind them, and Jesus turns around and says, Guys, what's with the net? Oh, Jesus, we're just... We're going to keep this in case this, what do you call it, fishers of men thing doesn't exactly pan out. This way we'll have something to fall back on. What would Jesus say? I can't use that. I have to be your net. Jesus has got to be your one and only net. Moving forward, he's going to have to be the net. And notice this, they didn't just leave the net. What else did they leave? Dad. Zebedee, old Z, just left him right there in the boat. What a contrast that is, isn't it? To the guys who were trying to go home. Let me go back to my father. Let me go back to the ones who are at my house. These guys just said, sign our dad. We're going with him. Who is he? We don't know. But I see something in him. I see it in his face. And they responded to the call. Can you see the difference between the two? Let me give you one other person who heard these same two words. You're here in the book of Mark. Just go, I believe, to chapter 10.
In Mark 10, verse 17, it says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now let the Bible paint a picture for you here. Does this sound like somebody with some urgency? Absolutely. Came running, the Bible said. Knelt before Jesus. Jesus is just walking down the road. And this guy sought him out, found him before he could get too far out of town, chased him down, came, ran, and knelt down at Jesus' feet. And probably nearly out of breath, good teacher. What other passages say, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And he and Jesus had a conversation. Jesus looked at him and said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. That could be confusing if you look at it just on the surface, but go back to the guy's question. Good teacher, what good thing must I do? Does that sound strange to anybody else? To put, number one, Jesus, was he a good teacher? Sure. Was he more than that? Yeah. And there are many people even today that would agree, you know, Jesus, he's a good teacher. Son of God, that's crazy. But it's not enough to believe that Jesus was a good, just a good teacher. It's not enough to, to just believe Jesus was a prophet. Or said some good things. Yeah. Had some good principles for you and I to live by. That's not yeah. enough. Mm -hmm. He's the son of God. Yeah. My savior. But this guy said, good teacher. So he's got Jesus on this level. And then he said, what good thing must I do? Yeah. And he used the same word to describe his efforts and actions that he did to describe Jesus. That's why Jesus said to him, why are you calling me good? In other words, what's your concept of good? And they had a conversation about the commandments. He said, you know the commandments? And this guy responded to him and said, I've done all that. I've kept all of that from my youth. In the Bible, I like what it says in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. So you know whatever he's about to say is coming out of this place of love for him. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and, and follow me. Follow me. Now we're sitting up in here today where all of us have heard those words, but not everybody in this day and time when Jesus was alive walking on this earth in the flesh heard these words. This was really pretty rare. And this guy, evidently Jesus saw something. He looked at him and he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, take up your cross, follow me. Now which way is Jesus moving, forward or backward? Always forward. But this guy's response was what? He went away sad at this word. He was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This guy, and in his failure to understand what is truly good, had to make a, dec a decision in a split second money and stuff, or follow this guy. 
And he's come to Jesus in a genuine search, and he's looking for the right thing. He's looking for eternal life. What do I do to inherit eternal life? But his question alone reveals so much, doesn't it? What do I do to inherit? An inheritance is not something you get because you do something. It's something that you get because you are someone. It's not the result of you doing. It's the result of you being. I'm mindful of my inheritance. Anybody in here have a rich grandfather? Anybody? Man, you got to get one of those. They, let me tell you. Believe me, I'm mindful. All my cousins and I. We know there's something coming. But here's the thing about my inheritance or yours or anybody's. It's something that belongs to me that somebody else worked for. He worked for it, not me. That's mine and it's coming to me. But he's the one who worked for it. But this guy's question was, what do I have to do to inherit it? To me, it's perhaps maybe a window into his own life. The Bible calls him, at least in this header, the, the rich young ruler. How's a young guy come to be rich? Most likely inheritance. I wonder if this is a, a little snapshot, a little glimpse into the relationship he had with his father. Had to do something to inherit this. What do I have to do to inherit? You don't do anything to inherit you be a son. You be a daughter. That's what you do. Thank you, Lord. See, the calling on our lives to be is higher than the calling on our lives to do. Thank you, Lord. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stood up in the temple in his own hometown and he said, having been given the scroll of the book of Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, and then he just listed his job description as the anointed one, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to, to preach recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But this is his calling to do. That's Luke 4. You want to know what Luke 3 is? It's the day when Jesus came to John the Baptist. And he said, you need to baptize me. And when he did, he came up out of those waters of baptism and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in who I am well pleased. There's the calling to be. So what came first? The calling and the anointing to do this or the calling and the anointing to be a son? And the Father spoke that over him. Yeah. In whom I am well pleased. Yeah. 
And you might look at the life of Jesus and you think, man, well, of course he's pleased. All the miracles, all the messages, all the, the blind eyes open, the dead raised, and everything he did, he's so pleased with him. God said that to him before one message was ever preached, before one miracle was ever performed. And I submit to you that it was a revelation of how pleased his father was in his sonship that launched him into his future in ministry. What do you think is going to launch you into your future. It is your response to the calling to be. Be a son. Be a daughter. Be a child of God. Be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's your calling. And even before Jesus sent out the 12, you look in places in Scripture, well, Mark chapter 6, other places, before He sent them out, before he gave them power over unclean spirits, before he told them to go preach the kingdom, go preach repentance. You know what the Bible says? He called the 12 to himself. There's your first calling. Because if you don't respond to that calling, there is no other calling to go do, to go preach, to go do anything else, no other assignment, no other anointing, because your first one is to answer the call to Jesus. Answer the call of sonship. Answer the call to be a child of God. In this moment of time, this rich young ruler had to make a decision. What am I going to do? What's worth more to me? This stuff or this calling? And he walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He held on to it. On the other hand, Jesus tells a parable about somebody who was just working in a field and found treasure in it and for great joy over it went and sold everything that he had and bought the field. Do you, you catch that with great joy? So this guy walks away sad, but this other guy's full of joy selling everything. And that's what Jesus told the, the rich young ruler to do. Go sell what you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. See, he just walked away probably two minutes early. Because Mark 10, in that same chapter, verse 30, verse 29, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. What's he talking about? Leaving home. Leaving home. What's your motivation? For Jesus' sake and the gospels. What are they going to get? Verse 30, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. See, if that guy had just stuck around, stuck, stuck around, stooking around <laughs> long enough to just hear Jesus finish the thought. Sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. This guy's assumption is, well, that's why I'll have to die to go get any of it. Jesus didn't say that. He said, there's nobody that's left anything for my sake in the Gospels that won't receive now in this time a hundredfold. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about the hundredfold return. You've heard it preached. I've heard it preached. But from what I can tell, it belongs to a very special group of people, those who are willing to leave the net, to leave home. That's who gets the hundredfold. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Worship the Lord for, with me for just a moment. Let's get his direction on this. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Your future is nothing to be afraid of. Your future is nothing to be afraid of. People live in fear of the future, but for one reason, they've never been there. They don't know what's waiting. But for you and I, for the child of God, even if we don't know the details of it, we know the God of it and can be confident that it's good. And we can press forward and resist the temptation to go back. I'll give you one more example of this and we'll be done for tonight. In Acts chapter 13... Verse 1, it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, named several of them. Verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me. Isn't that where we started just a little bit ago? About being a vessel sanctified, separated. He said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's 2 Timothy 2. Yeah. Separated, prepared for the work. What's the Holy Spirit saying? He's saying, I can use these guys. Yeah. These are guys I can use. These guys are in shape. They're fit for my use. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Verse 3, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Now, I want you to notice how many stops these guys made. I mean, you talk about a road trip. These guys were road tripping. They went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. Then when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Verse 6, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, here's another place, they found a, sor a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. I bet he did when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, yet another stop, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So Barnabas and Saul have been called by the Holy Spirit, separated by the Holy Spirit. I can use these guys. They prayed over them. They sent them out. And they went from one city to another city to another city. And I identify with this a little bit. This is a little bit of my life. I've been going to city to city to city. 
And John Mark, this young guy, was their assistant. So he's with them going into these synagogues and they're preaching. And everything was fine as long as they're preaching in these synagogues. But they showed up in this one city when all of a sudden there's a sorcerer. So help me out. What are Paul and Barnabas out there doing? They're out there preaching in places to people that have not yet been told who Jesus is, what he's done. You know what you could say they were doing? Plowing. Right? They're plowing ground. Plowing hearts. These guys are out there plowing. And then they show up in this one place and there's a sorcerer that's there to try to stop them. All of a sudden, they have run into demonic activity. And if anybody in here has ever plowed anything, particularly a church, then you know there is demonic activity to put a, try to put a stop to that plowing. Why? Because after plowing, the seed of the word gets sown. Yeah. And after the seed of the word gets sown, it produces a harvest yeah. in people's lives. So if we can stop them while they're plowing, then we can keep the seed from being sown and there won't be harvest. And that's what this guy's out there doing, this sorcerer. But Paul stands up in his face, you son of a devil, and he starts <laughs> preaching at him, and he's blind. But I want you to notice what happened. In verse 13, when Paul and his party set sail from there, they came to Pergam, Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, the only thing we know about John and Jerusalem, you'd have to back up to verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 12. Do you remember when Peter got out of jail? And he came knocking on the door of that house. And that little girl answered the door. And she she slammed it in Peter's face. Peter's here. Peter's. That was John's mom's house. It says that to us here in chapter 12. When he had considered this, verse 12, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This was in Jerusalem. What happened here? John went home. Why? Because this just got weird. (laughs) I was fine as long as we were preaching out there in the synagogues. And we were on this awesome road trip. And I'm out there sailing the seven seas and living the life. But all of a sudden, this plowing stuff just got freaky. And he bailed on them. He left. It's an interesting thing that Paul said to the sorcerer, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways if you've ever plowed a field you know you can't go around the rock you got to get it out of the way you've got to plow in these straight lines but john mark bailed and if you were to fast forward to chapter 15 in verse 36 after some days paul said to barnabas let us now go back and visit our brethren every city where we have preached the word of the lord and see how they're doing What's he saying? We've plowed. Let's go back and sow. In verse 37, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. I think they were cousins. I think that's here in the scripture, their family. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed with them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. One translation says Paul thought it not fitting. Because this guy put his hand to the plow, and when it got hard, he went home. 
And Paul said, look, I love him. I have no doubt he's got a call in his life. But we can't use this guy. We can't use him. He's not fit for this. In verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. If you study this out, it, it, it's not a stretch to assume that this may have become a physical altercation. This is how serious Paul was about not using somebody who was not in shape. And it's sobering, isn't it? To think that you and I could be loved by God, we could even be called by God, but that we could find ourselves in a shape or a condition that He couldn't use. But there's good news. This is the last place I'll make you go tonight. You've been patient. Second Timothy. Back to where we started. This time, look at chapter 4. Verse 9, he says, he's writing to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Notice this, verse 11. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is useful to me for ministry. There's good news here tonight, folks. Even if you're not in shape, you can get in shape. That's good news for me. That's good news for every single one of us. It's sobering to think maybe I'm not in the condition he needs me in to do what he's called me to do. But the good news is you can get there. And this is what's even better, spiritually speaking, as compared to physically speaking. You can get in shape quickly, spiritually. This physical guy, he takes a little while. You don't, you don't do one workout and then say, thank God I've arrived. <laughs> but you can make a heart change so quickly that you might have walked into this place tonight not yet fit for his use, but you can leave it ready to take a step to the open door of his calling on your life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And it's a heart change. That's what it is. It's a heart change. It's just simply saying to Jesus, you're first. There's nothing else. I have nothing more important to do than what you've called me to. I have no other place to be that's more important than in your presence. That's why I'm so blessed by this group that's here tonight. And Joel, just looking at it, I think this is the most we've had on a Friday night. I think. That says a lot. It's hunger. It's hunger. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Why? Because I'm going to fill them up. I am going to just straight fill them up. And when he fills, he fills to overflowing. Thank you, Lord. Why don't you stand up with me? I've kept you long enough tonight. Let's just make some hard adjustments right now. We can do it. It's easy. It's simple. It's just letting the Lord know there's nothing else before it. And if you've had a me-first mentality, if you've gotten a glimpse of the call of God on your life, but you've been afraid because it seemed too big, it seemed too, like we said a moment ago, expensive, here's the good news in that. That's how you know you're hearing from God. 
that's, that's really one of the tests I give myself. Am I hearing from God about this thing? And I stop and ask, okay, is it too big for me to meet the need of? Okay, must be God. Because why would I be doing that to myself? Huh? And that's one of the ways, that's an indicator that you are hearing the voice of the Lord. Is that you've gotten a glimpse of something that's way too big for you to reach into your own pocket and meet the need of. You're hearing from Him. But don't run from it. Run to it. Let's pray together tonight. Just bow your heads with me. Father, I pray over this, this congregation tonight. And together we make these hard adjustments. We say to you, Lord Jesus, that you are first and there is no other. You are first and you are only. And whatever, whatever grip that home or the security it represents or the so-called safety that it's tried to hold on to us with tonight, we let that go. And we declare that there is no safer place to be than in the middle of your will for our lives. So tonight we worship you with this word and we open up our hearts to hear it, to receive it. And I ask you, Father, to begin tonight speaking to your people, those that have an ear to hear it and a heart open to receive it. Give them, even if it's just a glimpse, give them something concerning the future. And I ask you, sir, to cause them to know that you will be the net that holds them up. And that they'll never be responsible for mending this net because this net never breaks, it never falters, it never fails. Thank you, Father. Thank you, my Lord. We worship you tonight. We praise you. We praise you. We praise you. Why don't you just say it out loud? You first, Jesus. I put you first. In my heart, you're first. In my mind, you are first. In my life, you are first. And tonight I answer the call. The call to fellowship with you. The call to be a child of God. The call to be your righteousness. And I ask you, sir, reveal to me. Give me eyes that see what the anointing is on my life. What you've created me to do. What you've equipped me to do. What you've called me to do. And graced me to do. And I'll run to it. Never from it. I'm not afraid of the future. I move forward in faith. In Jesus' name.